0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns. A great piece of cinematic storytelling typically consists of a compelling main plot and a number of worthwhile subplots which meaningfully dovetail into the overarching narrative. But some of these tiny plot threads can be so subtle that you don't actually realize that they've been fully achieved until you finally sit back and say, wait, what was that? So let's take a look at them as I'm Jules, this is WhatCulture.com, and these are the 10 greatest unspoken movie plot points. Number 10. Time travel exists in the Gremlins universe. Gremlins. Now, Gremlins is hardly a massively grounded movie, but did you know that it secretly confirms the existence of time travel within its own universe? Time travel is a theoretical possibility in every universe, of course, but in Joe Dante's classic creature feature, we actually see it subtly carried out. Halfway through the film, eccentric inventor Randall calls home from an inventor's convention, where in the background, eagle-eyed viewers might notice the iconic prop time machine from the 1960s film adaptation of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine. Now, that's always and good, but then when we cut back to Randall after cutting first to his wife Lynn, the machine has miraculously disappeared, leaving behind scorch marks, smoke, and an audience of shocked observers. This is easily missed, no matter how many times that you've seen Gremlins over the last near 40 years, and indeed nods to Dante's Ponchon for ridiculous wink-wink humor which he amped up considerably in the wonderfully wacky sequel. Number 9. Marlon's Guilt Has Made Him An Alcoholic The Truman Show The Truman Show is a fantastic film, jam-packed with subtle allusions to the sinister wider operations of the titular reality TV enterprise. One of the film's most fascinating characters is Truman's childhood friend, Marlon. Now, Marlon, or Lewis, has been a paid actor on the show since his youth, and the final cut of the film keeps it fairly ambiguous as to how genuinely he regards Truman. However, various deleted scenes and cut elements from the script paint a much more complex portrait of Lewis, as a man who feels considerable guilt for his part in duping Truman and even lets Truman go after capturing him during his famous escape attempt. But there's one aspect in the film that slyly hints at his guilt, and that is his drinking. Though Lewis is frequently seen with a beer for the sake of product placement, according to the actor who played him, he was told that Lewis had suffered with substance abuse throughout his time on the show, with several of his more extended absences being due to various stints in rehab. And so for Lewis to have to continually shill for booze must be extremely painful, regardless of whether or not the production had surreptitiously provided Provided him with a non alcoholic substitute to prevent him from relapsing again. Number eight, the arrival of the Asgardians totally changed human religion. Spider Man Homecoming. Even with Avengers Infinity War changing the universe forever with Thanos' snap, the MCU has largely shied away from delving too much into the wider implications of superheroes' impact on everyday human beings. But there have been some intriguingly subtle suggestions, and perhaps none more so than a blink-and-you'll-miss-it hint towards Thor's cult of zealots in Spider-Man Homecoming. When Peter and May go to a Thai restaurant for dinner, the building next door has a sign on it which reads, Korean Church of Asgard. This basically implies that, since the arrival of Thor, and the other Asgardians on Earth, humanity's relationship with religion has undergone significant changes. Namely, that new religions have sprung up that revere our saviors as literal gods, which, at least in Thor's case, is basically true. This also follows the lead of the comics, where there was indeed a Church of Thor. It's interesting to consider how these New Age faiths may have stolen believers away from more mainstream, faith-reliant religions, because Thor's existence is something that people can actually see for themselves. Now, while it doesn't seem terribly likely that the MCU will explore this much further, the Location nevertheless gives fans plenty to consider. Number seven, the baby has a hangover, Adam's family values. So simply put, Adam's Family Values is one of the greatest comedy sequels ever made, and one of those terrific films that just peels back more and more layers every time that you watch it. Case in point, did you have any idea at all that Gomez and Morticia's newborn son, Pubert got drunk at Festa and Debbie's wedding? You might recall the next scene set a week later, where Gomez prepares a drink for Pubert consisting of a raw egg, an unsettling dash of vodka, and a splash of Worcestershire sauce. This is a variation on a cocktail known as a prairie oyster. The vodka bottle is only seen for around a second so it's easily missed and you may well assume that Gomez has simply made a rather revolting looking concoction for his baby boy gomez then says hair of the pub yet he says it so quickly that you might not appreciate the implication that pubert is about to drink a hair of the dog as in the hangover cure consisting of a small amount of alcohol that got you drunk in the first place basically pubert got wasted on vodka at festa's wedding reception no matter that he's a baby and all and is still apparently hungover a week later this is further hammered home when you consider that pubert is also wearing sunglasses, what with hangovers making everyone extra sensitive to bright lights. The most deranged studio comedy of the 90s just got even weirder. It seems obvious once you know, but it's so easily missed regardless. Number 6. John Doe knew Tracy was pregnant from the beginning 7. The unforgettable ending to David Fincher's Seven sees serial killer John Doe reveal to Detective Mills that not only has he killed his wife, Tracy, but that she was pregnant with his child. It's a cruel, brutal ending, which, while leading us to believe that Doe only found out about Tracy's pregnancy when she begged for her life, isn't actually true because Seven's opening credits tell a different story entirely. The film's fantastically grimy opening title sequence provide vague glimpses into the life of Doe as he writes in his diary, develops photos, and performs research for his intended victory. Victims. Almost halfway through the credits, which is around 1 minute and 7 seconds, we can see, for about half a second, Doe reading a page of a book with the header, When You're Pregnant, before Doe redacts the word pregnant. While the opening titles aren't strictly canon – I mean, after all, why would Doe redact the word out of his own reading materials – it does suggest that Doe knew that Tracy was pregnant before she told him. If we accept that Doe became obsessed with Mills's personal life over the course of the movie's cat-and-mouse game, it's totally plausible that he kept tabs on Tracy, too. either through her trash or intercepting files at her doctor's office to learn about her pregnancy. Either way, grim. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" there are some fantastically subtle subplots in the inaugural James Bond film Dr. No. You might recall a scene where 007 and Honey Rider meet Dr. No at his lair, and as he leads them to sit down for dinner, Bond pauses for a moment to stare at a painting. You'd be forgiven for missing it, but this is actually a famous Goya painting called The Portrait of the Duke of Wellington, which was stolen in 1961, the year before Dr. No's release. The obvious implication is that Dr. No had schemed to have the painting stolen, whether for his own private display or to sell it onto an Interested party on the black market. Either way, it's an amusing engagement with real-world history, albeit one that's largely lost on younger audiences watching the film today. The duplicate was painted by production designer Ken Adams and in an hilarious twist of fate was also stolen from the movie set. Number four. Nobody eats noisy food in the apocalypse, a quiet place. A Quiet Place is, aptly enough, a movie all about silence and what's unspoken, given that making noise leaves you vulnerable to the extraterrestrial invaders which hunt by sound. This post-apocalyptic scenario has forced the survivors to severely adapt their behavior, from using sign language to communicate, to walking barefoot throughout the city, and even making shrewd decisions about the food that they consume. Early on, when the Abbott family is scavenging supplies from a local store, keep your eyes peeled and you might notice that specific aisles of the store have been ransacked while others have been left entirely intact. Hilariously, the owl-containing potato chips has been left completely untouched, presumably because both opening and actually eating the damn things generates a lot of unwanted noise. As much as we all love Doritos and Pringles, are they really worth getting ripped apart by an alien for? Actually, there are some weird people out there, don't answer that. In all seriousness, though, dietary habits have likely changed significantly if any air quotes loud food is being written off for safety's sake. Needless to say, if the alien invasion finally ends once and for all in A Quiet Place Part 3, there's going to be one hell of a run on potato chips. Number three, Debbie is probably Ethan's daughter, The Searchers. John Ford's 1956 western The Searchers stars John Wayne as grizzled Civil War veteran Ethan Edwards, who returns home after an eight-year absence only to find that his niece Debbie, played by Natalie Wood, has been kidnapped by Native Americans. Though the film never confirms it, there are many allusions that Debbie isn't actually Ethan's niece, but in fact his daughter. And the evidence in question includes the clear intimacy between Ethan and Debbie's mother Martha, and the fact that Debbie is eight years old when Ethan returns home, which coincides with Ethan coming back after eight years away. It would also explain why Ethan ends up pursuing Debbie quite so tirelessly, that he wouldn't rest until his daughter was found one way or another, and why he, from his own perspective, would rather kill her than see her living as an Indian. All in all, this reading of the film recontextualizes Ethan's journey in a fascinating way, presenting to us a man able to play the role of a fatherly protector and air-quote save his flesh and blood, but also being one unable to stay home, settle down, and become a permanent paternal figure in Debbie's life. And so, with his job done, Ethan heads back out into the wilderness, Debbie with the family she knows. Number two, Aldo survived a lynching years earlier in *Glorious Bastards*. Quentin Tarantino's *Inglorious Bastards is one hell of a densely packed movie, full of well-drawn characters and whip-smart dialogue such that nobody could be blamed for failing to pick up on every morsel of subtext throughout. Case in point, while you might have noticed the prominent scar on Lieutenant Aldo's neck, did you give it much thought beyond a tough guy like Aldo getting into some brutal scuffles over the years? A bar fight gone awry, perhaps? Though some fans have speculated that Aldo had his throat near-fatally slashed, Tarantino's original script actually provides us with a basic, concrete answer. This what it said in the script. Lieutenant Aldo had one defining physical characteristic, a rope burn around his neck, as if once upon a time he survived a lynching. The scar will never once be mentioned. It's further been suggested that Aldo may have been lynched for some racist reasons, given that he says in the film that he's a descendant of a mountain man, Jim Bridger, and that he has a little engine in him. Whatever the reason, it's clear that Aldo very nearly lost his life in a lynching years before heading to war, hardening his resolve for the fight ahead. And number one, Sean becomes a DJ at the end. Sean of the Dead Trust Edgar Wright of all filmmakers to leave a frankly ridiculous amount of character backstory hidden in plain, wordless sight. His rom-zom-com, Shaun of the Dead, makes it abundantly clear that protagonist Shaun is a directionless young man, working a listless electronic salesman job and basically eking out a miserable humdrum existence. Surviving the zombie apocalypse has woken him up from his unambitious stupor, and he appears to be in a much better place, having gotten back together with Liz and finally letting her move in. But as the pair relax on their sofa, look behind them and you you'll see a telling red poster on the wall which advertises an upcoming DJ set by none other than Sean Smiley Riley. Given that we see Sean and Ed messing around with DJ decks earlier on in the film, and that their flat also has another older poster for a set by Sean Smiley Riley, it's pretty clear to assume that Sean used to be an aspiring DJ. The new red poster subtly implies that Sean has once again taken up his passion of DJing, pulling himself out of the depressed funk that he found himself in pre-apocalypse. Now that is some low-key character development. Nice. Thank you.